Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A multi-billion dollar student loan forgiveness plan now struck down by the high court. What students now face and reaction from President Biden. In a second major decision today, the Supreme Court has made it clear that people don't have to say things they don't want to. In a significant First Amendment case, the court ruled in favor of a web designer who objects to same-sex marriage. France is facing a fourth night of riots. Despite the 40,000 police officers deployed across the country, last night saw increased violence and destruction. Former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is now banned from politics for eight years. But things don't seem to be ending for him and his crew. And Republican presidential candidates arrive in Philadelphia, speaking to a crowd in the name of parental rights. The Supreme Court today striking down the Biden administration's multi-billion dollar student loan cancellation plan and President Biden now vowing to take action. NTD's Iris Tao joins us live from the White House. Iris, what can you tell us? Hey, good evening, Tiff. So today in this 6-3 to three ruling, the Supreme Court effectively ruled to block President Biden's student loan cancellation program, which would have benefited some 40 million Americans, but also cost taxpayers about $400 billion in taxpayer money. So in the majority opinion this morning, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that basically the Biden administration by itself did not have the big legal authority to basically just wipe out the student loan by itself. And it asked that the political and economic significance of such a move will be staggering by any measure. But President Biden later this afternoon in the speech fired back, basically calling the basically calling the decision a mistake and even going further to say that he believes the Supreme Court has misinterpreted the Constitution and also blamed today's outcome on Republicans fighting against it. Watch. The money was literally about to go out the door. And then Republican elected officials and special interests stepped in. They said, no, no. Literally snatching from the hands of millions of Americans thousands of dollars in student debt relief that was about to change their lives. And perhaps more importantly, President Biden today announced several new actions that his administration will be taking in response to the ruling today. First, the administration will be pursuing a different legal pathway, this time under what's called the Higher Education Act, to still try to provide student loan cancellation to some students. And secondly, his administration is going to lower the percentage of monthly income that borrowers will have to pay toward their student loan debt every month, effectively cutting it by half by lowering it from 10% to 5%. And thirdly, the president is also going to roll out what's called an on-ramp program, which is like a grace period in which borrowers will have to, will not have to have their credit credit score affected even if they miss their monthly payments for their student debt. So these are the three steps that President Biden today announced. And basically, this is his main message. Watch. Now we're going to pursue another. I'm never going to stop fighting for you. We'll use every tool at our disposal to get you the student debt relief you need and reach your dreams. It's good for the economy. It's good for the country. It's going to be good for you. 
But while President Biden is vowing to take actions, we know that Republican lawmakers are all applauding today's ruling. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said in a tweet to that that, quote, 87 percent of Americans without student debt will, will no longer be forced to pay for the 13 percent who do. And of course, others are criticizing Biden's plan as a socialist agenda. But aside from politics here, we know that this ruling will have a direct impact on tens of millions, millions of Americans nationwide. So first, they will now have to face the reality that no, their student debt will not be wiped out as originally promised. And secondly, in just a few months, a three-year-long a three pause on student loan repayment will be lifted. And that means that some students or some adults will now have to start paying for their student loan debt, perhaps for the first time in three years. And Tiff. Good reporting as always, Iris. Thank you for that update. And in another decision today, the Supreme Court said a web designer had a First Amendment right to refuse to create websites for same-sex weddings. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards explains the case. Five years after the Supreme Court declined to review whether or not a Colorado baker could exercise his free speech rights by refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex couple, the justices today ruled that a web designer didn't have to create a website. In a 6-3 decision, the majority decided that the First Amendment prohibits Colorado from forcing a website designer to create expressive designs speaking messages with which the designer disagrees. In other words, free speech is her right, and Colorado's anti-discrimination law cannot force her to make websites for same-sex couples if she doesn't want to. Colorado's law makes it illegal for a business to refuse to provide goods and services based on sexual orientation, race, and other traits. Lori Smith, the graphic designer, hasn't made any wedding websites yet. She wanted to expand her business but worried that the Colorado law would force her to create websites celebrating marriages she doesn't support. Smith filed the lawsuit to clarify her rights and to prevent the state from forcing her to create websites inconsistent with her religious beliefs. In the past, the court has ruled largely in favor of those who have made religious freedom arguments. But in this case, it's a major decision for states across the country with anti-discrimination laws like Colorado. This is a momentous victory for free speech. I cannot uh, express uh, how important this case is for the First Amendment. Jonathan Turley, a Fox News legal expert, said the court has made it clear that you can't coerce people to say things. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who wrote the dissenting opinion, said the majority had granted a business the right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. She said it is profoundly wrong for the court to allow a business to be shielded by the First Amendment against an applicable law that prohibits discrimination. Last year, during oral arguments, opposing groups asked how far this would go. What if the business doesn't want to serve interracial couples? How would that be handled? Where does the court draw the line, and would the line be drawn differently for different classes of people? Smith has said she is willing to work with people regardless of their classifications, such as race and sexual orientation. But she also said she will not produce content that contradicts biblical truth. In comments after the ruling, Smith said this is a victory for everyone. Whether you share my beliefs or completely disagree with them, free speech is for everyone. She said she always chooses her projects based on the message, never the person requesting. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
For further analysis of today's Supreme Court's rulings and their implications, NTD's Don Ma speaks with a constitutional lawyer. And joining me now is Jenna Ellis, former senior advisor counsel to Donald Trump and constitutional attorney. So the Supreme Court uh, rejecting Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Now, Biden criticized Republican elected officials saying that, quote, they had no problem with billions in pandemic-related loans to businesses, and those loans were forgiven. What's your reaction? Well, I think he's comparing apples to oranges here, and clearly what the Supreme Court uh, held today was that he didn't have the ability to unilaterally forgive uh, student loans and this was not within the purview of the executive branch. And so regardless of what he would like to criticize Republicans for, that's a totally separate question. And the Supreme Court in the majority today held Biden to the rule of law, which is the U.S. Constitution. And we all need to do that as conservatives, conserving our rule of law, even if it's a Republican measure or a Democrat measure that goes outside of the specific limited authority given to that particular government actor, the Supreme Court is right to say that it's unconstitutional. Does this set a precedent for the future in cases where the executive branch wants to do some, something similar to get around the legislative branch? Well, it should. And I think that the Supreme Court, with a conservative majority, uh, now is increasingly going to uh, condemn as unconstitutional and overrule executive action that goes outside the scope of the specific limited authority that's given to the executive branch. The executive branch can't legislate. That's very clear. In Article 1, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution says all legislative authority is given to Congress. All means all. And so the executive branch cannot rule by legislation legislative fiat or by executive order. I also want some comments from you about the other ruling today where a Christian web designer being allowed to refuse work with uh, refuse to work with same-sex couples. Is this unprecedented? Well, I think this is a huge win for a freedom of speech, and this is actually more of a free speech case than it is a free exercise of religion. And so the Supreme Court made a very broad opinion here saying that the state of Colorado cannot use its Anti-Discrimination Act to forcibly compel any person to speak messages that they fundamentally disagree with. And so this is balancing the interests of free speech, which are constitutionally protected under the First Amendment, against a very over broad state-level act that violates a person's conscience. And so this is free speech protection for all. This is a great opinion. And again, 6-3 majority, this was very uh, wide and a broad decision that upheld the U.S. Constitution. But does this not open the door to discrimination? Not at all. And so this is where we always have balancing interests and freedom of speech for all means all. And so the government, uh, through whether it's termed anti-discrimination uh, legislation, cannot forcibly compel you or me or a website designer or anyone else to speak messages that violate our conscience or our beliefs. The government should never be able to prohibit speech. Uh, but the government, the flip side of that coin, is that the government cannot compel anyone to speak messages that violate their conscience or that they disagree with either. All right, let me just get one more comment from you. A number of rulings this week all seem to lean conservative. Many Democrats and progressives are accusing the court of being politicized. What's your response to that? 
Well, it's interesting that when uh, the, the Supreme Court issues a ruling that Democrats disagree with, their automatic reaction is to simply say, well, we need to pack the court or we need to change the rules. And Republicans, unfortunately, sometimes do the same thing, but it's most often the Democrats. Every single person in the United States should respect the fact that we are under a rule of law. We are a nation of rules, not rulers. And so this isn't a matter of being politicized. This is a matter of making sure that we are upholding our rule of law in this country for everyone. All right, thank you so much today, Jenna. It was great speaking with you. Great to speak with you too, thanks. When the Supreme Court begins its next term later this year, justices will take up a case on the Second Amendment, deciding whether domestic abusers can have guns. Under a federal law in 1994, people under domestic violence restraining orders are banned from possessing firearms. The high court will decide whether the federal ban violates the Second Amendment. Jackie Rahimi, a man in Texas, brought the lawsuit after he was indicted for violating the law. The Supreme Court handed down a major ruling on the Second Amendment last year, striking down New York State's rules for issuing concealed carry licenses for handguns. That decision sparked a series of legal challenges to other gun laws in the country, including this one. Justices are expected to hear oral arguments next term beginning in October. A decision could come next year. France was rocked by another night of rioting and unrest. Violence has extended to even more cities with looting and attacks on public buildings. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the details. 40,000 police officers were deployed on Thursday night in cities and towns across France. Yet the massive force did not prevent scenes of devastation that were even worse than on the previous nights. Police arrested 875 people and about 250 police officers were injured. Video on social media show thousands of fires, looted shops and clashes with police. Two off-duty police officers were assaulted in Marseille, leaving them severely injured. A shopping mall in the center of Paris was attacked and looted. A swimming pool construction site for the 2024 Olympic Games was set ablaze in a Paris suburb. A police union in the western city of Strasbourg called the situation a war zone. Think tank director Pierre Marissev says several factors can explain the degree of violence. It's a completely lenient justice system. It systematically releases offenders, thugs and criminals. A justice system that doesn't want to punish and that doesn't dare to take firm decisions, and which therefore undermines all the efforts of the police over the last 30 years. In other words, the police now no longer prosecute failures to comply in the suburbs housing projects, because they know that. Even if they did arrest the perpetrators, they would not be jailed, and they would find them 12 hours later in the same street. The Institute for Justice last month filed a lawsuit against the government for not curbing the violent crime surge in France, which to a large part comes from suburban youth. He says the suburbs in France for many years have become no-go zones. Yes, suburbs are becoming lawless zones. You can commit crimes outside the projects, and all you have to do is to go back in, hide there to get away with it. And the authorities don't go there. They don't want to enter the projects. They don't want the suburbs to erupt into riots like the ones we are seeing now. French President Emmanuel Macron on Friday urged parents to keep rioting children at home. He blamed social media and video games for having a bad influence on youth. 
Sev says this is out of point. If I were to say that video games are the problem on any media outlet, everyone would think I'm a fool, and everyone would be right. In this case, it happens to be the president of the republic, so it seems to me very, very worrying for the possible solutions that may be sought afterwards. Emmanuel Macron is not interested in these issues. As a presidential candidate in 2022, he made it clear that prison was not a good solution. Members of parliament have called for the president to declare a state of emergency with measures including a curfew to curb the violence. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Next, former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is banned from running for public office in the next eight years. What's next on the agenda for him? NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest. On Friday, Brazil's federal electoral court charged former President Jair Bolsonaro for abuse of power and misuse of media, officially freezing his political career for the next eight years. Out of the court's seven justices, four voted to convict Bolsonaro. The case traces back to last July, when the former president summoned a group of foreign ambassadors. During that meeting, Bolsonaro questioned the nation's electric voting system in front of them, and the event was streamed live on national television and several social media platforms. Bolsonaro eventually lost the election to his leftist rival Lula by a very narrow margin, but he maintains his stance till this day, saying that a president has every right to cast out on Brazil's elections. Just one day ahead of the trial, Bolsonaro told the press that he was not guilty of anything. For God's sake, what did I do wrong in a meeting with ambassadors? I'm not guilty. I didn't commit any crime in a meeting with ambassadors. Now they accuse me and want to strip me of my political rights on an accusation of abuse of political power. Aside from this case, Bolsonaro faces several criminal charges, and some, if he's convicted, could land him in jail. But none of that seems to spell the end for Bolsonaro and his crew. The former president said that he plans to take this case to Brazil's Supreme Court. As for Brazil's next election in 2026, he's pinning his hopes onto his wife Michelle, a political newcomer often spotted at his campaign events. Just like a third of Brazil's population, Michel Bolsonaro is an evangelical Christian. And evangelicals are major backers of Bolsonaro's conservative family values. William Douglas, a Bolsonaro-backed federal appeals court judge, said that Michel will gain support from Bolsonaro's voters. Michel has not ruled out the possibility of running for office. Sam Wong, NTD News. Coming up, the State Department approves an arms sale to Taiwan, sparking backlash from the Chinese Communist Party as relations with Beijing remain complicated. We take a look. And Congressman George Santos appeared in court today facing federal charges for money laundering. And he was confronted with protesters as he left the building. That's coming up. Welcome back. Hundreds of millions of dollars in potential arms sales to Taiwan approved by the Biden administration. How does this fit in with the one China policy? NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. The State Department has approved a $440 million potential arms sale to Taiwan to help the island support their credible defensive capabilities. And this comes on the tail end of a historical visit by congressional lawmakers, key members on the House Armed Services Committee toured the island for two days this week and met with President Tsai. Our support for Taiwan is bipartisan and unwavering. 
There are no reports of Beijing retaliation for this trip as there were for previous visits by U.S. lawmakers, like the threats Foreign Affairs Chairman Michael McCall experienced just a few months ago. I got briefings from our military that they were starting to surround the island with an armada of battleships, 10 of them. But this recently approved U.S.-Taiwan arms sale did attract backlash from Beijing, the CCP warning the U.S. to stop. But the U.S.'s perception of one China is tricky, as displayed in these comments by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo. We've had a long-standing policy of making sure that uh, we could uh, do what's necessary to help Taiwan defend itself. And President Biden has said many times that the U.S. would support Taiwan in the case of a Chinese invasion, but those comments have been very quickly walked back by the White House. And just most recently, President Biden referred to Xi Jinping as a dictator. And when asked if these comments by Biden would make these relations with China even more complicated, Biden responded by saying simply no. I expect to be meeting with President Xi sometime in the future, in the near term, and uh, I don't think it's had any real consequence. However, the Biden administration describes China as a pacing threat. And this week, the Pentagon clarified its findings on the CCP spy balloon that floated across the U.S. airspace this winter. It had intelligence collection capabilities, and it has been our assessment now that uh, it did not collect uh, while it was transiting the United States. But some say the event still had consequences, notably a test of U.S. resilience. The will of, of the Washington leaders to allow this kind of thing to go on and the uh, political impact it made. This year's National Defense Authorization Act that Congress is currently wrapping up does include $500 million for Taiwan to purchase American-made weapons. Another $100 million is for other defense services, including military training. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Congressman George Santos appeared in federal court today. He's facing 13 charges ranging from money laundering to wire fraud. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. On Friday, Republican Congressman George Santos arrived in federal court in Long Island, New York. Santos has been out on a $500,000 bond since he pleaded not guilty to a 13-count indictment, which includes seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of making materially false statements to the House of Representatives. Santos could face up to 20 years in prison if convicted. In court, prosecutors said they delivered about 80,000 pages worth of documents to the defense earlier this week. And Santos's attorney said that Congress's upcoming recess in August would be a good time to review those documents. The judge set Santos's next court date for September 7th, one week before Congress is back in session. Santos wished prosecutors a happy 4th of July as he walked out of the courtroom. One woman outside the courthouse handed him an American flag as protesters could be heard in the background. A group of demonstrators asking for Santos to step down voiced their frustrations across the street, including this disabled veteran. Why did you run for Congress in the first place? You didn't know this was going to come out? You think you're so smart, man. You don't run for office when you've been such a hood and a criminal your whole entire life. He alleged that Santos set up a GoFundMe for the veteran service dog and kept the donations. My friends, family, uh, Navy shipmates, um, and friends of friends donated $3,000 to it. 
George Santos felt a night out on the town and a dopey zip-up sweater uh, was a lot was worth a lot more than my dog's life was. So he took my money and he ran and he was nasty to me. And one of Santos's constituents put the blame on someone else. The residents of New York 3 are paying the price for Speaker McCarthy's refusal to hold George Santos accountable. For some reason, Mr. McCarthy feels we do not need proper representation as he watches George Santos desecrate his congressional seat. According to House rules, Santos can still perform his duties as a congressman. However, if he's convicted of a crime with a potential prison sentence of two or more years, he won't be allowed to participate in floor or committee votes. Santos plans to run for re-election next year. Jason Perry, MTD News. People from across the country are in Philadelphia to hear Republican presidential candidates and conservative thought leaders. The topic, Parents Say in Education. Here's NTD's Jack Bradley. I'm here at the Moms for Liberty National Summit where many people from across the country are gathering to hear prominent Republican politicians and thought leaders share their views on parental rights. We heard from Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, and now we're going to hear from former President Trump. Let me say a very special thanks to every one of the amazing activists and citizen leaders here today. You have to be an activist nowadays because we're dealing with crazy people. <laughs> you have proven beyond all doubt that there is no earthly force more powerful than the love of a mother for her children. That's true. In school board races, PTA meetings, and town halls across the nation, you have taught the radical left Marxists and communists a lesson they will never forget. Don't mess with America's moms. Does that make sense? I know exactly what they're talking about. Don't mess. I spoke to several attendees at the event to get their views on such issues. Let's take a look. I see there's a, a massive group uniting. You really awoke a beast that you didn't want to wake up when it comes to mama bears, when it comes to dads saying, you're going to come and take our kids. Like that's something that, that individuals will die for. If you come after our kids, they will die if you actually come after them. This is the number one issue in Washington state. Washington state is going to turn into the sex trafficking uh, mecca of the country with the new laws that they've just passed. And this issue, I believe, is going to be the preeminent issue dominating the 2024 election cycle because of how it's activating moms. The more that they see uh, the blatant education, sexualization, uh, gentrification of elementary school curriculum, and the more that they see that their kids are being co-opted without their knowledge, and the way that these rules are being slipped in into the de dead of night, uh, they're going to get more and more engaged. And when I found the group, it was at a time when we were being labeled by our federal government and the Biden administration, working with conjunction of teachers unions as domestic terrorists. And it can be very difficult and intimidating to try to make sure your voices are heard um, from at your school board during those times when you're being labeled that. Um, so it was great to have that, to have the support of other moms with me as we went in front of our school boards and advocated for our children. The event continues tomorrow with a whole new round of speakers and on Sunday, so stay tuned for more on parental rights. Jack Bradley, NTD News. And for more analysis, NTD's Chris Spears spoke to Jay Richards, author and director of the Center for Life, Religion and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Jay Richards, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Jay, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy are speaking at the Moms for Liberty Summit going on right now. Um, 
Tell us about how, um, what that means for the impact these types of groups like Moms for Liberty are having on the national politics. I think it's hugely significant. I mean, the reality is there was no Moms for Liberty three years ago. Last year, they had their first summit in Florida. I attended that as well. This year, as you mentioned, we've got several major presidential candidates all speaking. We've also got massive protests on the other side, outside the hotel and outside other venues. And so I think it, it shows that there was clearly a market need for an organization like Moms for Liberty, which the stuff that Moms for Liberty talks about would have been uncontroversial five years ago, and yet now here we are in 2023, they actually get protested for having a conference. Now, protesters have been trying to get this summit shut down, calling Moms for Liberty a hate group. Um, what's this opposition all about? Well, so far as I can tell, I've had to walk past the protesters several times. Um, it, it, it doesn't really even have anything to do with what Moms for Liberty stands for. Um, a lot of the signs I noticed seem to have something to do with same-sex marriage or parents that said, well, I the mother of a gay child. Well, if you look at the materials and the, and the things that Moms for Liberty focuses on, it doesn't have anything to do with that. They're interested in parents' rights. They're interested in schools being accountable to their parents. They want transparency. I think parents are the primary uh, authorities in, in the teaching of their children. They, they really got their start because of the crazy COVID lockdowns. And then the onslaught of critical race theory and gender ideology in schools. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about same-sex marriage or anything like that, but that seems to be what the protesters think they're actually about. Can you tell us more about what Moms for Liberty and groups like it are um, you know, interested in working on in the country? Absolutely. Moms for Liberty is organized basically by districts or counties, and that's because the two founders of Moms for Liberty were themselves former school board members in the state of Florida, uh, and they realized the incredible amount of power that school boards have. In fact, you might have six, seven, eight people that are citizens of a particular town. Uh, you, people probably don't even know their names, and yet they may sit atop some budget for schools of several hundred million dollars. So they have an amazing amount of power, uh, but not a lot of accountability. And so the reality is even in very conservative red districts, you'll often have far left school boards. And so the curricula and the stuff getting taught to kids in public schools doesn't actually reflect the views of the majority of its citizens. So they focus on school boards. And I think that's part of why they've uh, created such animosity from people on the left who I think had imagined that school boards and school districts was their jurisdiction. Do you think these issues will be a big issue in the, uh, in the upcoming presidential election? I absolutely think that's the case. In fact, I think that's why basically all the, the leading presidential candidates, at least in the GOP, have decided to come up here to Philadelphia. I think they recognize the parents' rights, what's happening in schools, and especially kind of crazy woke ideology is something that is not only, I think, a winning idea across uh, the, the political spectrum, left, right, and center, but certainly among Republican voters. I mean, I, I would imagine that they've got 85% of Republicans in agreement with them. That's what Moms for Liberty is focusing on, and so it makes sense. I'm actually glad that they recognize that it's in their political interest to be talking about these issues. What are groups like Moms for Liberty looking for in the next presidential candidate? They want, they're looking for a presidential candidate that will actually walk the walk and talk the talk. I mean, the reality is that Republican politicians during the primaries, they always poll test the different things that they say. But the reality is people like Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, I think he's, though Montreal is not endorsing any candidate, I think in many ways he's the sort of ideal because he was actually willing to lean into these issues at a time when a lot of Republicans were frankly afraid to talk about it. I mean, Ron DeSantis has been willing to fight for kids, willing to explore 
explicitly call out gender ideology in public schools and to support uh, bills that increase the power of parents over their kids and uh, fighting against this idea that the school is somehow supposed to be the arbiter in any questions between parents and the children. Jay Richards, thank you. My pleasure. Up next, former presidents, presidential candidates, universities and others are reacting to a Supreme Court ruling. The high court struck down the decades-old practice of affirmative action in college admissions. Stay with us for that story and more after the break. Welcome back. Politicians and others are reacting to the Supreme Court's landmark affirmative action ruling. The high court struck down race-based college admissions yesterday. Here's what people have to say. We are very disappointed in this decision. Democratic Governor of New York Kathy Hochul says public universities in the Empire State will continue to ensure diversity. That's after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions. And I've been in contact with our SUNY Chancellor, John King, who will be assessing their policies, but assures us that they'll be considering many factors to understand that diversity is an important part of who we are. The Supreme Court held in a 6-3 opinion that affirmative action violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Presidential candidates reacted to the decision. Former President Trump said the ruling marked a great day for America. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis tweeted, that college admissions should be based on merit and applicants should not be judged on their race or ethnicity. The Supreme Court has correctly upheld the Constitution. Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said that the effects of racist policies in the U.S. go back centuries and that colorblind admissions tend to favor those who are already in the circle of privilege. It favors those who grew up in affluent, educated households. Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy responded to Kennedy, saying he disagrees and that we should finally embrace colorblind meritocracy in America rather than repeat our past mistakes. The court's ruling overturned cases reaching back 45 years in invalidating admissions plans at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. A law professor at North Carolina commented on the ruling. My blood boils when I think about uh, how this is being done in the name of anti-discrimination, uh, you know, ending discrimination. President Biden on Thursday suggested he'll take executive steps to fight the high court's ruling. Turning now to California, known for its large public university system, how does the Supreme Court's ruling impact California schools? Entity's David Lamb reports. The California State University System is home to 23 campuses, and the state's UC system is home to 10 college campuses, which you may have heard of, UC Berkeley, Davis, and Irvine. The UC president, Dr. Michael Drake, issued a statement on Thursday after the Supreme Court's decision on banning race-based preferences in college admissions. Drake says student diversity remains a top priority for the University of California, one that we will continue to pursue with every tool available to us. The Supreme Court said that race cannot be a factor in college admissions, calling it unconstitutional. But 
Does this affect California universities? Well, according to Proposition 209, the state already banned race consideration in college admissions in 1996. Since then, University of California has tried to increase diverse student groups by using a comprehensive review process, which considers academic accomplishments in light of life experiences and circumstances, quality of academic performance and improvement, as well as special talents and experiences. To run some numbers, in 2002, years after Prop 209, UC undergraduates' ethnicity rates remain pretty much similar. However, fast forward another 20 years to 2022, the difference is much wider. According to the UC system, Asian graduates decreased from 37 to 32 percent. Hispanics and Latinos increased from 15 to 22 percent. Caucasian went from 36 to 22 percent. And African Americans went from 4 to 4.5 percent. On the high school level, San Francisco's Lowell High School, one of the top performing public schools on the West Coast, reported a spike in failing grades among students after replacing its academics-based admission system with a lottery for the 2021-2022 school year. Concerned parents said the lottery system was unfair for the hardworking students. The school board decided to go back to merit-based admission in 2022. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And earlier today, we spoke to the lead insider in the Harvard admissions lawsuit, Kenny Shu, for his reactions. Kenny Shi, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Good to be here. To begin, what is your reaction to the high court's ruling yesterday? It's a great ruling. It's, I'm ecstatic about it. It's what I've been fighting for for the past five years with my old book, An Inconvenient Minority. Um, and it, it, what it shows is that, you know, merit-based treatment should reign supreme. It's what most Americans believe in. It's what 75% of Americans believe in. Race should not be used in college admissions. And honestly, it preserves the dignity of Americans who just want to be treated Fairly, you know, we don't want race used for or against us because I can't control the color of my skin, but I can control my hard work and the content of my character. And on that note, how does meritocracy play not just into college admissions, but society more broadly? And how can all backgrounds benefit from this? Well, just think about your doctor, right? Imagine if medical schools admitted just any doctor. That would not be, would you trust your doctor? Would you trust that he would be competent? Would you want him operating on your heart? You know, there's a reason why hospitals close entire clinics, heart surgery clinics, when they have a 3% mortality rate, uh, which is very high. Um, Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill closed their heart surgery clinic for toddlers because they had a high mortality rate. You know, Meritocracy matters. You need people who are capable of doing the job and doing it well, even perfectly sometimes, especially at the higher skill, higher end positions. Um, that's why meritocracy matters. Think about your life. Give us an example of when meritocracy versus affirmative action was actually maybe more fair and equal. Take a look at the U.S. military. In the U.S. military, you have to take a battery of tests in order to get in. And if you don't score high enough on these tests, you don't get in. Why? Because the U.S. military has correctly concluded after years of scientific study that if you don't perform 
well on these tests, you are more of a liability to your team than you are an asset because you need to be able to perform in high pressure scenarios. You need to be mentally acute. You need to be physically fit. You need to be able to withstand situations and you need to be able to communicate with your teammates. Those are what the tests are designed to assess. That's why you need meritocracy. Lowering your standard, all it will do will increase tension within your team and perhaps even break the team apart because nobody wants to support the, the lowest one on the ladder. And what about some potential loopholes that colleges could use to skirt around this court's ruling when it comes to meritocracy? Those loopholes are now made illegal under the current ruling. And I've read over the ruling, trust me. There is no, there is no way that colleges could skirt the ruling as Harvard seems to want to do um, by you know, asking students to make required statements about their race. The instant they do that, any lawsuit they will lose in court because the court has ruled and Roberts has ruled in the opinion that that universities cannot use race directly or indirectly in the application. You can talk about your race as an individual, but you cannot be preferred just because you talk about your race in your application. And looking forward, in your opinion, what is the ideal way to achieve this fairness and equal opportunity in both education and employment, maybe taking both meritocracy and affirmative action in mind? Well, let's talk about college admissions first. I believe in a race-blind, name-blind system. So my name is Kenny Shu. That will not appear in my application because you can easily tell me what my race is. Uh, in terms of K-12 public education, that's what my new book, School of Woke, seeks to address, because which comes out in August and you can pre-order now. Because what we have here is a lingering gap in education between blacks and whites. Whites score third highest in the world in terms of their academic achievement. Blacks score closer to Middle Eastern countries. It's very sad, but that is a decline in equal opportunity. If we're going to have an equal opportunity society where people can compete on their merits, we definitely need to improve our education system, especially for minorities. And Kenny Shu, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, the starting lineups for baseball's All-Star Game have been announced. We know Shohei Otani made the cut, but who joins him? That and more when we return. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a possible blockbuster trade in the NBA. That's right, Tiff. Former NBA MVP James Harden reportedly picked up his $35 million player option for next season, though he wants to be traded according to multiple sources. Now, if this happens, it'll be the third blockbuster trade he's been involved in in less than four years. Harden was dealt from Houston to Brooklyn in 2021, and then from Brooklyn to Philly just 13 months later. Now, both trades happened after Harden reportedly asked for them as a 33-year-old 10-time All-Star seeks his first NBA title. The versatile guard has led the league in scoring three times, but last season pacing the NBA in assists the second time in his 14 years. And in baseball news, the All-Star Game starters for both leagues have been announced with Texas 
leading the way with four selections. The Rangers will send catcher Jonah Heim and third baseman Josh Young, who are each making their first All-Star team, along with shortstop Corey Seager and second baseman Marcus Seaman to the Midsummer Classic. Among other notables are two-way star Shohei Otani getting the nod at DH, his third selection, and teammate Mike Trout making his 10th All-Star team. The three-time MVP Trout is actually on pace for the lowest hitting numbers in his storied career, while Otani leads the league in numerous hitting categories, while as a pitcher, it sports the highest strikeout rate and lowest hit rate among qualifiers. Meanwhile, home run champion Aaron Judge was selected for a fifth time, but has been shelved since June 3rd with an injured toe and will likely be replaced. The All-Star Game is scheduled for July 11th in Seattle. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, more baseball games. 14 are on tonight, including the Tampa Bay Rays and ace Shane McClanahan. McClanahan leads the league with 11 wins and a 2.23 ERA as the Rays play at the Seattle Mariners. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, over to you. And finally, a California house is gaining a lot of attention. It's a replica of the White House, and it's up for sale. Let's take a look. Regardless of what your parents may yell at the dinner table, they don't let just any old Yahoo live in the White House. But if you play your cards right, you could move into the next best thing. An estate nicknamed the Western White House is up for sale in California. Built in the 1800s, the home was remodeled in the 1920s to look exactly like the real thing. It even has its own rose garden and oval office. Look, the owners don't care whether you're red or blue. They want the green, baby. $38.9 million to be exact. Hey, if you consider the real White House is worth around 400 mil, by comparison, this Western wannabe is a swinging good deal. So whether you've been biding your time on buying or waiting to trump the market, home buying hopefuls shouldn't wait to cast their C-note votes for this California candidate. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.